Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning. Before um, we go on, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation, and I would like to pay my respects um, to Elders past and present, and that it always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hear, hear. All right, um, we're back on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, so before we um, start, we only have one interview booked today, but it's um, one of the guest speakers from this upcoming Vojava Feminist Conference. Um, her name is Frederique. Uh, I forgot her last name, but she is a journalist for, um, a D- based in Dutch, and she's done quite a lot of work um, around the whole, you know, Kurdish question. You know, you know basically, you know, writing a lot of um, articles about this whole about the whole kind of turbulent kind of relationship between the the Kurds and the kind of repressive Kurd- um, Turkish state. And she's spent quite a bit of time with. Also, um, the PKK, um, which is the Kurdish kind of workers' party. So we're interested in. We'll be um, hearing from her. You know, where she'll be talking about. You know, her work and um, and she's actually going to be speaking at a doing a bit of a, na- a national tour. Um, she's already spoken uh, at a um, in Sydney, um, and she'll be speaking tomorrow um, at the Rojava Feminist Revolution Conference um, or seminar which will be happening from 10am to 6pm at the Victoria University Flinders Street campus. All right, um, so I guess many listeners have probably heard about the tragic news stuff that is happening on Manus Island right now. Um, Basically, the situation has gone completely dire. Um, There's over 400 refugees who are currently stranded on Manus Island um, Mm -hmm. as a result of basically the government had closed down Manus Island, um, you know, cut off water, um, cut off any power, and basically, you know, the refugees who are still stranded there are absolutely suffering in inhumane conditions. Mm. Um, I mean, I saw a news article recently where they were basically to, you know, in a desperate attempt to find water, they were digging up sand in the Manus Island camps. Um, and also one of the other issues is there being um, is the hostility they're facing from outside Manus Island. Mm. Um, our government's refusing to do anything, especially since they put them in their to- in those torture camps to begin with. Um, and the refugees have been demanding that you know, or because um, you know, there's this whole que- thing where you know if you close you close down the detention centre, where where um where were they where were these um refugees who are still there going to be mm. um and they've done nothing to, to ensure they have a safe place in fact manus island is actually considered to these refugees to be a safer place than what out the outside world is <laughs> um because there are people um outside the camp want to kill them um and and so yeah it's a very intense situation right now our government is also doing absolutely nothing especially since they're already compliant in the fact that they put 
these refugees in those camps to begin with. Um, and um, a Green senator has actually visited the camps and can, you know, report firsthand. I think his name was Nick. Uh, do you know what his last name? Uh, Nick McKim, the Tasmanian. Yeah, Nick McKim had visited the camps and can confirm that the situation is absolutely dire. Hmm. And um, he had quite a lot of strong words to say about Peter Dunton, which I thought was a really powerful statement, um, basically saying that, you know, Peter Dutton's a liar, you know, fascist, etc., um, and that, you know, he's a, a serial human rights abuser. Hmm. Uh, I was talking to Lali about this last night. It's just yeah, it's just mind-blowing, the, the, the depths of depravity that the Australian government just continue to... They, it's like they always find something more evil to do to refugees. Uh, and Lali was saying that New Zealand had offered to take 150 of the refugees from Manus, and mm. Dutton said no. Yes. Well, I'd, uh, uh, if that's he did say no before, so I'm not sure if that was recent information, but um, New Zealand has actually previously offered to resettle refugees. Okay, and under the Dutton's previous government. Un- under the previous government. But actually mm. at the same time, this, um, the new Prime Minister Jacinta um, has offered to resettle 150 refugees. Mm. Um, it's unclear, um, I, I, but it's possible that the Peter Dutton's already said no, but I haven't looked at the what the latest news is on going that. But I'm just um, making clear that Peter Dutton has actually said no, no. So this will be mm. actually the second time he's refused. And, you know, I don't know what, what kind of goes on through Peter Dutton's head. Like, you know, what, what do you want to go down in history as? As like a... Like people get a look back on this and and uh, go on and will will acknowledge how absolutely shameful um, what our government um, was doing to refugees mm. and you know the torture the depravity it's just as you said there doesn't seem to be any low that the government won't go towards yeah and some of the stuff I've been reading about you know what is fascism how do you analyze it one of the one of the things that, that that really sticks out in my mind regarding this is part of fascism is the normalizing of of really inhumane acts so before you have a um, before fascist organizations can can kind of take root or take power or do something um, you know as horrible as the Holocaust or whatever. You have this normalization of of seeing other human beings as as subhumans, and uh, yeah, it just seems the past twenty years of refugee policy in Australia has been this process of just just inching further and further uh, down this horrible, evil road of mm. of completely dehumanising refugees and just making it normal and acceptable for just increasingly more horrible and terrible things. Mm. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's a very real risk that, um, you know, people could die. Like, if you don't have food and water and you're trapped there because there's a, a local population that, that has, you know, been violent. Where is this going? Yeah. 
Well, and I think also what also has to be said, while the Liberal government has been absolutely, you know, cruel in their um, in their treatment of refugees, I think the ALP, the opposition's silence, is also another matter of um, where we should be making criticism as well. Because mm. the only statement I've heard from the Labor Party has been to say that, oh yes, the situation has been poorly handled. Yeah, um, basically saying nothing. Um, they're not committing to you know, um, closing down the offshore detention centres. In fact, they support, hmm. um, maintain these detention um, camps. Um, and, you know, they, they've, you know there's, there's actually an opportunity here where they could actually make a statement and stand up for something, yet hmm. they're absolutely not showing any kind of leadership. Um, in fact, the Labor Party um, in New Zealand is actually showing far more compassion um, for the plight of um, asylum seekers than the ALP here, and mm. it's absolutely shameful. Which was saying something, given that the Labor Party in New Zealand has entered into coalition government with a far-right party, which is similar to One Nation here. Yeah. So for yeah. them to be more compassionate towards refugees than the Australian Labor Party is saying something. Yeah. Um, but um, for listeners, um, there's been a lot of um, kind of things on, you know, um, posted around what you can do. Mm. Um, one of the common things I've seen around social media is that they've been encouraging people to call, um, call up your local MP um, to keep putting the pressure. You know, I think I think it does. It is useful to just keep. You know, if these MPs keep receiving any calls, they get they start to feel um, pressure. We've also been they've also been encouraging people to you know specifically call Peter Duttons and Malcolm Turnbull and. Um, I've got the other senator, um, the other minister, um, but those are those the numbers being passed around. And there's also uh, a rally has also been called this Saturday mm. um, at 2 p.m. Um, at the State Library. And um, I think it's going to be quite big because I think people are really angry about this. Um, and we're, and there is a plan to basically occupy the streets and for a certain amount of time, you know, to basically make as loud of a noise as possible. Um and the, and also, I think there's there's also all sorts of other. So these are the, those are the kind of two kind of practical political things we can do in light of this kind of you know crisis. And let's hope you know um, we can make some noise. Um, although the refugee movement has been going on for quite a long time, and it doesn't feel like um, there's any ch- there. It doesn't feel like we're affecting government policy. But I st- at the same time, we have to keep up the opposition we have to keep building the movement hmm. um because you know if there were no rallies or um no pressure um applied to the government then what would it actually say like it hmm. would basically just give the government what else free might rate. it be doing now yeah other than just cutting off the food and water and electricity yeah it's um i was thinking about this before because i was I was kind of making some comparison between the refugee, uh, sorry, between the equal marriage or the e- equal love movement and uh, the climate movement, and and I was thinking the the equal marriage movement has done a really good job of of mobilising around the demand for equal marriage for close to fifteen years, and it started off small, and it's gradually gained more traction. The climate movement has not been so good at finding a specific national kind of demand, be that 100% renewable energy or whatever, and mobilising around that. Um, 
But then there's been the refugee movement, which has been very dogged and has been mobilising. And I feel like um, it's perhaps on a, a longer timeline than the equal marriage uh, campaign that it's, um, yeah, it ebbs and flows, but I think it's important for that for that kind of like nucleus or that, that attempt to spark a, a real big mass movement mm. to keep ticking away because that potential is always there for that to steamroll into kind of like the equal marriage rallies um, have into a, like real massive rallies all around the country where there's this kind of momentum of inevitability, like we mm. will win this. Yeah. I think um, although um, two years ago, um, so someone has been kind of, you know, active in the refugee rights movement for, you know, since I've gotten involved in activism because it was the issue that did get me into activism. Mm. Um, one of one of the highlights of the campaign has been around that whole let them stay around Baby Asher. That's, I think, the last kind of peak kind of moment for the refugee campaign where we really did feel like we had power. Mm. Um, the, there was massive mobilisations in all the major cities, including ones like caught at late notice. In fact, there was one rally that was caught on a weekday. Mm. Um, and in fact, it attracted over 2,000 people, um, which was, I think, amazing. Um, and the fact is that that was actually a partially one campaign. We actually did stop Baby Asher from being deported to Nauru, mm. um, although she is... The, the the child is still held on an onshore detention centre. That's still better than what the alternative would have been, which was you know being um, placed into Nauru. Mm. Um, so it would be great in light of of this if we can you know these tragic events if we could rebuild that kind of momentum mm. um, that was ha- um, that was built during that um, during the Baby Ash campaign because I think what it really shows is I think I think. Um, people do actually care about refugees. I think it's just within light of the current situation, people are feeling quite demoralised. Mm. But obviously when a tragic, a crisis point like hits like this, mm. um, it's guaranteed to be lots of people are going to start mobilising. I already feel that the refugee rally this Saturday is probably going to be quite big, along with all the ones in the other major cities. Mm. All right. Um, so I think there's some other news we can talk about. Um, but, yeah, Kylie encourage anyone who's listening to attend the refugee rally this at 2 p.m. at the State Library. All right. So now in terms of um, news, um, on on last Friday, I'd like to have a bit of a discussion in this is in relation to an article written by Alex Bainbridge on the whole, you know, this whole high court decision um, that was passed down recently. Um, but basically, you know, many people, you know, were probably like ourselves were probably celebrating when it found we found out that, you know, Barnaby Joyce is not actually eligible to sit in the parliament. Um, and also the high court also ruled that, you know, right-wing buffoon um, Malcolm Roberts was kicked out of the Senate um, along with the deputy leader of the National Party, Fiona Nash. And I think, though, one thing I think that kind of has to be said is, you know, while it is a great, good thing in the hot, um, really that these right-wing politicians aren't serving um, and were kicked out, um, at the same time, the way they were kicked out is actually quite problematic because the whole kind of constitution is really, I think, we should be very critical of this um, of this um, of this sort of constitution because it's basically promoting, you know politics on kind of like nationalistic grounds it's Mm. basically you know arguing that you know someone you know i actually think it's actually perfectly 
in a re in a reasonable democratic country, mm. people with dual citizenship should be allowed to um, to you know serve in parliament. Mm. And um, you know, I think it's um, I think one criticism I kind of would make of the Greens is they have not been you know critical of this process. They've basically you know tried to make the argument that oh yes, we did the right thing you know by mm. resigning. Um, you know, by resigning Scott Ludlam and Larissa Waters, but not actually, you know, but not actually being critical of how nationalistic and kind of like ultimately racist the Constitution is to begin with. Mm. Yeah, they just rolled over as soon as like like naughty kids who'd been caught with their hand in the cookie jar or something. Mm. And uh, yeah, as you say, it was an opportunity to say this law is outdated. This mm. provision in the Constitution is just garbage. Mm. And uh, let's get rid of it. Yeah. And um, Alex Brainbridge here writes in his article that, you know, much of the public commentary, you know, both popular and elite, has assumed it is a bad thing for elective representatives um, to have allegiance to a foreign power. Um, But then he points out here that, you know, most people do not think of citizenship in these terms. You know, the the more important principle is for voters to be able to freely choose their preferred candidate and to have institutional mechanisms of accountability so elected politicians can be recalled if they disappoint their constituents. Mm. Um, And so we, I think... Um, you know, when we consider, um, Alex says here, you know, when considering some of the biggest controversies in Australian politics in recent times, work choices, a carbon price, MBN, ABCC, marriage equality, and others, national allegiance really makes no difference. The real different division, you know, is over support for or opposition to big corporate interests or ordinary people. Um, and then, you know, Alex Bainbridge then concludes here, but, you know, we need democratic reform that makes it easier. Um, for ordinary working people um, to achieve progressive change in our own interest. Um, this ban on, you know, dual citizen MPs, you know, should be seen as is not like the big it's not like the biggest obstacle. I mean, I'm hardly going to, you know, in terms of like all these issues that are happening, I'm hardly gonna try and build a big campaign to change, although I do think it should be changed. Um, but it is an undemocratic measure and mm. um, it should be removed. Yeah. Right. Um, yes, so, my now, agreement. Now, just in terms of some activities that kind of happened in the past week, um, there was a kind of National Day of Climate Action um, that happened recently on Wednesday. And I'd like to just give a bit of a report on what happened on... Um, there was basically a big kind of mining conference that was apparently happen- that was happening at the Expedition Centre um, or the Conference Centre in southern, um, near in Southbank. Um, and so basically Quit Coal had organised a Stop Adani um, rally, which was actually, you know, quite, um, which was quite a good turnout for a weekday rally. There was like probably around over 500 to 600 people. When was um, that Wednesday? Yep, this Wednesday. Mm. But what was significant, I think, about the rally was the the very high level of high school representation um, there were, you know, there was a lot of high school students there for a school day, and in fact, um, what was um, what was funny is um, from where the rally was, um, there was a high rise building. Um, sort of, if you looked um, to the, sort of the back, it was a bit hard, to, a bit hard to describe. But there was a high rise apartment, and basically, some Northcote high school students basically went up to that high rise and put did a banner drop of Stop Adani, which, hey. was really, which was really great. And um, we also made our, sure our voice was heard. And so we all got and 
put um, got gathered up um, towards the windows and you know looked at all the mining magnets and said no, no Adani, no coal, keep it in the ground. Hmm. And, They're watching you. Yeah, and uh, what I found interesting is um, just my personal experience at the rally is I, I had a chat with actually someone who was actually at the mining conference. Uh, as a representative of the mining industry. Uh, I presumed, based on his accent, that he was American. Um, and so it was interesting because um, he was actually attending the rally, you know, to hear the kind of the other side, you know, the opposite about, you know, what the argument is for the opposition to Adani. And I sort of asked him a question of, you know, what did you, what do you think about Adani? And he sort of gave this kind of response that's kind of typical of, you know, a lot of people who are kind of in, you know, part of corporations or in these kind of positions of power. But he basically kind of gave this response of, oh, yes, it's, you know, complicated. Um, you know, it might not be even economically viable. I can see the arguments for why, you know, against it. And I think, I mean, all everything he said seemed perfectly fair and logical. The problem was that, you know, he was seeing this whole question in whole in economic economic terms Mm. and what really really the whole question of this whole Adani mine should be actually be put on well what is it going to do to the environment Mm. Um, it's actually going to negatively impact on the environment it's already going to kill the Great Barrier Reef Mm. Um, the future of our planet is at stake and there's actually we don't have we there's to basically intellectualize and go think about it in terms of maintaining the economy is incredibly problematic Um, yeah well like the the right wing conservatives <clears throat> like to portray themselves as superior economic managers who like if you're stuck on a desert island and you've got a pile of coconuts and you eat all the coconuts on the first day and you don't ration your coconuts you're economically an idiot and the idea that building the economy now with fossil fuels in some way justifies 80 metres of sea level rise and destroying farmland and flooding 2 billion people in India and China and Pakistan, uh, followed by a massive drought. The idea that the massive disruption and destruction of the global economy that global warming will cause is somehow okay if we have a a continued 2.8% growth now or some rubbish, it's just ridiculous. So, yes, it should be called out. Like, it should be self-evident that we should not be sending droves of coal ships through the Great Barrier Reef. Mm. But also, if you think that you've got good economics and you support runaway climate change, you're on crack. You're an yep. idiot. Like, it's it's just it's mm. just absolute lunacy. And that's that's part of the hypocrisy of conservatives, I think, is that... They'll talk about, oh, intergenerational debt. Oh, we, we don't want to run up public debt by spending money on, on things. Like like the Liberals, if there was ever a serious opportunity to have a 100% renewable energy in Australia, no doubt government debt would play a substantial part of that. And you can just imagine they'll be, oh, we can't hand this debt on to future generations. But climate debt, oh, that's no worries. We'll, we'll hand an absolute horror situation to future generations in Mm. terms of climate change. Yeah, that's fine. Mm. Anyway, um, I'll just go play a quick announcement and then we've got got another news story to share um, related to our current um, workers' dispute. Word. We will not 
not negotiate with minus native title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. All right. Um, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on the 855am dial, or maybe you're streaming it live on freecr.org.au, and it's 7.30am. All right. So, um, in terms of news, um, um, basically, um, there's, a, there's currently a big workers' dispute um, happening right now um, regarding possibly your favourite ice cream company. Um, Australians uh, were urging, you know, people to boycott um, um, to boycott street ice cream, and the reason why is the company's owner Unilever is a, basically applied to Fair Work Australia to terminate um, the current enterprise bargain agreement. Um, this, this, um, this, what this could lead to is basically leave 140 workers at the streets factory in Minto, New South Wales, with a pay cut of up to 46%. Um, you know, to, 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 for street to tell you what streets ice cream that includes paddle pop, cornetto, magnum, and golden gay time. I think you should just not have any of that during the summer mm. until this until you know um, the workers company commits to not terminating that enterprise bargaining agreement here at 3CR we're not allowed to advertise products but be assured that there are other ice cream providers out there yep. other than streets yep who you will be able to turn to for some cool sugary refreshment on a hot day just stay away from that streets yeah. Well, what we're saying is stay away from streets ice cream. So mm. we're actually, there's no promotion here. Mm. All right. So and also Steve um, Murphy from the Australian Manufacturers Workers Union said the only way to make Unilever listen was to hit them where it hurts. Um, and the Australian public, when they go into the local public or the local survey deciding which type of ice cream they're going to buy, that makes them feel good. They want to know that the workers they have made their, that product are being treated fairly. Mm. And yeah, um, yeah. and there's a very funny kind of social media story actually regarding this whole um, boycott. Um, but basically, um, a group of two young liberals um, decided on social media it was a great idea to post a photo of themselves eating streets ice cream, and then basically went on about how, oh yes, you know, isn't it great being a liberal scab? Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's basically isn't it great being a scab? Or basically, they put they put it in terms of there's nothing wrong with jobs and investment. Basically, making the argument that it's right for for what um, the company's doing to cut these workers' mm. wages. Here we go. Uh, Superior economic managers again uh, on the basis of that. Oh yes, it will create jobs and growth. Well, that's probably not what's going to happen anyway. Well, it's actually literally, literally the opposite of what's going to happen because you've had the governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia in recent months saying there is no wages growth in Australia 
and that is bad for the economy. Mm. And then you get young liberals like this who claim to be to know about economics going, yay, wages going backwards. That's great for the economy. Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, and at the same <clears> when time... When workers don't have money to spend, when you have low aggregate demand, yeah. that is bad for the economy. Even conservative economists agree. Yeah. And at the same time, these young liberals probably don't even... They probably have no. They probably don't have the experience of, ha- no, having to live on a low income like mm. probably like both of us here in the studio. They've never had to have the experience of, um, you know, having to raise a family on a on minimum wage. Mm. They've never had to because basically they probably just inherited all their wealth um, from their parents yeah, or they've got already, some or, trust fund or have some really cushy corporate job. Like it's just it's just appalling how 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 disconnected you know. Mm. People can be from like everyday working life. Um, yeah, that's all I can all I can say about. It. But um, thankfully, they got a really big backlash on social media, and it's been all being you know it's all in their whole the whole scandal has all been put all over the mainstream media, mm. and so it's like you know justice <laughs> backs the wrong horse there. Yeah, back for it. Though I'm surprised. Um, I know I'm. You know, the funny thing is, I never, I never saw any cases like this happen um, around when the CUB dispute happened, which was interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't remember any young liberals, you know, bragging about drinking bitter. But maybe because CUB is considered working class beer. Yeah, working class will. They prefer Stella Artois and yeah. imported stuff. Right, and um, so not there's anything wrong with Stella. If there's any Stella drinkers out there. Like whatever, do do your thing. But yeah, I can't imagine too many liberals kicking back with some Carlton draft or whatever. Anyway, the the basically the basic lesson of this news story is to boycott streets ice cream and um, don't be a scab. Indeed, All right. boycott them where it hurts. All right, so this is an article um, that that's in the latest Green Left Weekly, um, basically about the whole you know train wreck that is um, the NBN. Oh, that particular dumpster fire. Yeah. So you know, you know, Malcolm Turnbull actually said, um, you know, on October twenty third that you know the National Broadband Network is becoming a clatomist sort of train wreck. Um, you know, Malcolm Turnbull said that. Yeah, yeah. But then, of course, Jim here writes in Green Left Weekly then. The fault actually lies with him entirely. Um, you know, he was the Minister for Communications in Tony Abbott's coalition government um, who in 2013 oversaw the disastrous decision to basically fundamentally change um, the NBN from mm. Labor's fibre-to-the-premise model to a technologically obsolete fibre-to-the-node system. Mm. And, of course, at that time, uh, Abbott probably wanted to apparently wanted to kill the MBN entirely. Mm. Um, just to give an explanation for the kind of bit of terms, it's in the article as well. Um, FTTP means a fibre broadband connection direct to the home or business, while fibre to the node means connection to the near street box or pillar with the final section relying on existing old-fashioned copper wire tension. Which um, may or may not need to be re- replaced with 16,000 kilometres mm. of new copper wire. Mm. Like, oh, it would be too expensive to put new fibre to your house, but we will put new copper to your house yeah. just to prove our ideological point. Yes. <laughs> um, FTTN um, was meant to be cheaper, but will inevitably be slow and I- I- unreliable. 
you know, now that Turnbull is Prime Minister, leading a government that is implementing a third-rate national internet broadband system inferior to the majority of countries in our region of the world. And, of course, as the ABC's Four Corners revealed on October 23rd, uh, New Zealand is rolling out an FTTP um, broadband system, which is significantly superior to um, the NBN and, um, and uh, Australia. Hmm. And, of course, telecommunications um, consultant Paul Budden highlighted the issue in a commentary piece in the Sydney Morning Herald. He emphasised that Turnbull, as then communications minister, led the change of this kind of NBN policy from FTP to the fibre to the node. And, of course, you know, but then... There's a lot of other factors to consider um, that uh, to take into account as well. You know, um, if we want to go, as Jim writes here, if we want to go even further, uh, it was under former coalition Prime Minister John Howard's watch that Telstra was privatised without any conditions to mm. attach to regional broadband or to an upgrade of, uh, of the network from copper to fibre. And, of course, uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald, um, Buttle called on the current government to stop the rollout of the fibre to the node and replace it with the fire to the curb. More money spent on the fibre to the node will only mean make the NBN less valuable and continue to um, you know, basically be a waste of taxpayers' money. Yeah, and inevitably, at some point in the not-too-distant future, they'll have to do that last bit of the job that they've expensively chosen not to do now. So, like, it just doesn't make sense. You might as well just do it now. Yeah, and I think really what this shows is kind of like the, you know, the disaster of like, you know, a privatised, you know, communication system. Um, of course, one of the, the logic, uh, you know, the logic of um, of what the what the coalition were trying to, to do with this fibre to the node system is they made the argument that, oh, yes, it would be cheaper and it would be more affordable and that it would come quicker, except... But the reality is, MBN is starting to come into you know some kind, uh, into some parts of um, Australia, and basically it's run under a, comp- a tiered privatised model, which basically means that they're internet service providers who are basically you know charging like excessive amounts just so you can get the full benefit of the NBN speeds, mm. and it's not even actually as good as what it could have been anyway. Mm. Um, in fact, you know the entry level NBN plan. Um, is giving speeds that ADSL two, for example, is already capable of. Um, so you know what exactly you know are we paying for? And um, as kind of Jim kind of writes here, you know the labour movement and the community need to draw a line in the sand before it's too late. There should be no sale of the ambit into the private sector under mm. any circumstances. And we must keep this kind of national communications infrastructure in public hands. Um, moreover, we need to start a campaign to nationalise or renationalise, in the case of Telstra, the entire corporate telecommunications, telecommunications industry under workers and community control. This is the only way we can defend the interests of the working people and consumers in, this, you know, in the critical telecommunications sector. And you know what? I reckon the majority of people would support that. Yeah, as the Corbyn experiences showed in the UK, um, when you talk about putting essential services back into public ownership, it's actually really popular. Yeah, um, and so yeah, just that's a good. Um, that was a good article to read about. You know, basically talking about how disastrous um, you know this whole MBN has been. Mm. All right, so um, we've got um, we now we've got some a bit of special kind of um, we're going to play something from Stick Together, I think. It's yes, there. so it's the Union News wrap up from uh, Stick Together's Matt Kunkel, 
Uh, we often interview a bunch of people um, on Green Life Radio, but we're mixing it up a bit this week. So, yeah, there's some uh, bit of news about the raids on the AWU office, um, announcement Shell Harbour Hospital will remain in public hands, the, uh, the streets boycott, and a couple of other things. So, yeah, check this out. It's from Stick Together. Without doubt, the biggest news this week was one of the most shocking abuses of political power seen in recent times. Acting on advice from the Registered Organisations Commission, which is the newly established commission to interfere with unions and create additional regulatory burdens, the Australian Federal Police raided the Melbourne and Sydney offices of the Australian Workers' Union, or the AWU. The Registered Organisations Commission has launched an investigation into union donations to both GetUp and the Labor Party, looking exclusively at the period where Bill Shorten was National and Victorian Secretary of the Union. Of particular interest was a large donation made more than 10 years ago of $100,000 to GetUp. These raids form part of a wider campaign by the federal Liberal government to demonise and criminalise unions and to persecute their political opponents. Perversely, these raids came on the same day that it was revealed in Senate estimates that cuts to the AFP's funding are preventing it from other activities like combating drug trafficking. The idea that a donation by a union to another progressive opponent of the Liberals is somehow more important than other areas of law enforcement shows just what a shocking abuse of power these raids represent. Much of the attention has been focused on how media was pre-warned of the raids, with crews arriving before AFP officers at both AWU offices. It would be no surprise to unionists around the country that Employment Minister Senator Michaelia Cash was neck deep in it. Since her ascendancy, Cash has spent the last two years singly focused on attacking workers and their unions. Her record is littered with hypocrisy, on one hand declaring that she is on a mission to stamp out union lawlessness, but on the other hand, knowingly doing nothing about the law-breaking of her hand-picked commissioner of the Australian Building and Construction Commission. Here's Australian Council of Trade Unions Secretary Sally McManus responding to these politicised raids. The politically motivated raids on a union this week put on for the nation's media prove when it comes to the Turnbull government, it's one rule for them, it's another for us. The Rock has existed for only six months. It's a highly political organisation designed to make the job of unions even harder. They can order the federal police to raid unions on the basis of just a phone call and so much more. It's got extensive powers to trawl through the internal operations of unions whenever it wants and on the say-so of the minister. All the while, banks and some corporations get away with serious law-breaking. The government has more anti-worker laws before Parliament now, which will give the Registered Organisation Commission even more power. The union movement is fighting back. It's time to change the rules. We need to swing the pendulum back in favour of ordinary working people. When the government uses the resources of the state to raid union officers, this is the time to stick together. Working people need pay rises and more secure jobs, not a government that harasses unions. Join your union. Together we can defeat Turnbull's anti-worker agenda and change the rules. There have been claims, counterclaims and accusations about cash misleading Parliament at estimates this week and what she knew and when she knew about the raids. The AFP is now understood to have launched an investigation into how its own raid was leaked to the media. And this isn't the first time that the Turnbull government has used the Australian Federal Police, with previous raids occurring on the CFMEU's office in Canberra and on Labor Party staffers over leaks highlighting the Liberals' failures on the issue of the NBN. 
In good news this week, it's been announced that the New South Wales Liberal government has backed down on its plans to privatise the Shell Harbour Hospital located in the Illawarra region of New South Wales. Unions and the local community have been campaigning hard since it was announced in September 2016 that the hospital would be redeveloped and run as a public-private partnership. Five regional hospitals were slated for such privatisation. Strong, union-led campaigns in the community have now saved four of the five hospitals. Also as a result, the New South Wales government has announced that it will provide much-needed redevelopment funds for the hospital, but retain it wholly in the hands of the people. Unions in the community are celebrating this announcement of $251 million for the redevelopment, which will bring much-needed improvements to the hospital, but also much-needed jobs to a region hit hard by the downturn in Australia's heavy manufacturing sector. Now, the focus turns to the last remaining hospital under threat in Maitland, which is located in the Hunter Valley north of Newcastle. A similar community campaign has just delivered a further 10,000 signatures to Parliament, bringing on another formal debate on the issue. You can get involved or find out more about the campaign on Facebook. Just search for Keep New Maitland Hospital Public. Maitland is spelt M-A-I-T-L-A-N-D. Well, the dispute at streets rages on. The ice cream company, owned by multinational Unilever, is attempting to terminate their enterprise agreement, covering 140 workers at their factory in Minto, New South Wales. If successful, it would result in a 46% cut in the workers' pay, and a number of other conditions like redundancy, shift patterns and consultation would all be wiped away. Last Sunday, the union, the AMWU, and the ACTU launched a boycott campaign urging consumers to have a streets-free summer and to not eat Streets products until the company backs away from its plans to cut wages and conditions. The company creates popular ice creams like Magnum, Gay Time, Cornetto, Splice, Bubble Bill and Paddle Pops. You can find out more information about the campaign at www.amwu.org.au forward slash streets. It was revealed in Senate estimates that more than 55 million calls to Centrelink went unanswered in the 2016-2017 financial year. That's more than 1 million calls a week. People calling Centrelink report wait times during the day of up to two hours, with many just giving up. People struggling to make ends meet, looking for jobs or reporting their income are doing it tough enough and these long waiting times are making it even more difficult. This is another example of how the government is making it hard for people to access their rights under our social safety net. This frustration has real consequences for many, as failing to report fortnightly earnings may see unemployed or tenuously employed workers breach the new start conditions. This triggers a cascade of fines and more onerous hurdles to clear in order to continue receiving the measly assistance that the government offers. No one calls Centrelink for a quick chat and to tell the department how well their lives are travelling. These are real people with real needs and they are being failed by this government. The social safety net is useless unless it is accessible and supported by sufficient public service workers. But over the last four years, the Liberal government has cut 5,000 permanent jobs from the Department of Human Services, the department that oversees Centrelink. The added work pressure these cuts have caused, coupled with a harsh industrial relations policy which has led to wage suppression and attempted cuts to staff conditions, sees Centrelink facing a very real crisis in retaining skilled staff and meeting the growing demand. This again is no accident. As it was recently reported, the federal government has outsourced some of Centrelink's call centre work to multinational giant Serco, the same company that it's engaged to operate its offshore detention program for people seeking asylum. It is a prime case study of the Liberals' ideological hatred for effective public service provision. 
the Abbott and Turnbull government have mismanaged Centrelink to the point of crisis. Maybe this is born of ministerial incompetence, but it is also likely that at some level this crisis has been manufactured as cover for the neoliberal agenda of outsourcing and privatisation. One of Australia's largest cooperatives, dairy producer Murray Goulburn, has been sold to Canadian-based multinational Saputo. Saputo is the 10th largest dairy company across the globe, and there was anger amongst dairy farmers at the recent AGM who blamed the CEO and upper management for shocking mismanagement of the operation. Earlier in the year, Murray Goulburn announced that it would close three plants in regional Victoria and Tasmania, claiming that it no longer had the milk supply to support these facilities. Farmers contend that the decisions by management to cut milk prices offered to farmers have been behind the failures of supply and the decreasing value of the cooperative. These failures threaten to hit the regional areas where the dairy processing plants are located, with much of the regional community reliant on the jobs and income the plants provide. The Union of Dairy Workers, the NUW or the National Union of Workers, has cautiously welcomed the sale. Victorian Secretary Gary Maas has said in a media release It is sad to see a cooperative that has served farmers, workers and communities well for decades disappear. Murray Goulburn has suffered from previous mismanagement, the demise of which can be tracked with the demutualisation push a few years ago. He went on to outline that the union hopes that this sale may lead to some certainty for those communities affected by plant closures and express their desire to continue their productive working relationship with Saputo, with whom the union interacts with at its other Victorian operations at Warrnambool Cheese and Butter. Around 100 concrete truck drivers, members of the New South Wales branch of the Transport Workers Union, protested out the front of their employer, Hanson, in Parramatta last Friday. The union has been caught in a protracted battle, fighting for pay parity between Hanson drivers and other workers in the concrete transportation sector. After months of fruitless negotiations, the drivers have declared that enough is enough and commenced indefinite strike action, which may impact significant government infrastructure projects like New South Wales M5 Tunnel Works. Richard Olson, the State Secretary of the Transport Workers Union, said Hanson have been ignoring our members for months, refusing to negotiate or listen. It is time for the company to come to the table and we are left with no other alternative than to take protected action. We'll bring you more on this dispute as it unfolds. All right. Um, so you're listening to Green Left Weekly um, Radio. Yes, and that was Matt Kunkel from uh, Stick Together with the Union News Wrap-Up. So... Thank you to the uh, comrades at Stick Together for their um, excellent coverage of, of union disputes and developments. Yeah. All right. Um, so we have probably like three minutes for a quick news story. Do you have anything to share, Zane? Um, not anything that particularly comes to mind. Um, I guess... I could I could entertain us with an anecdote from my recent trip to Germany. Yep. Oh, um, let's, let's do that. Yeah. Well, I went and visited um, myself and my partner. Went to visit one of my partner's old friends who lives in Kiel, which is a port town in sort of n- northern Germany. Um, Germany has like a mini version of the Suez Canal. So back in the day, you used to have to travel up around the top of Denmark for ships to get from this like inland sea um, across to the there's the East Sea and the North Sea. Anyway, in the in the like late 1800s, early 1900s, um, Kaiser Wilhelm, I think it was, ordered that this canal be dug so that. Kiel and some of these ports on the East Sea will be linked to 
the North Sea and ships could get out into the kind of um, into the big ocean. Anyway, uh, so there ended up being a significant naval base in Kiel. Um, now, when we went and visited, um, our friend's partner just happens to be a bit of a kind of lefty and a bit of a history buff. So he ended up talking at great length about the history of Kiel and some German political history, which was really interesting. And he spoke about how at the end of World War One, the chief of the... This is in 19... I think November 1918. Um, the chief of the Navy was like, oh, we're losing the war. Um, we don't want the enemy to capture our ships. So how about you all... Um, get in the warships and go out to sea and have a heroic final battle. You'll be defeated and sink to the bottom of the sea and the enemy won't get our ships and it'll be heroic and glorious. And the Navy, rank and file, were like, um, no, how about we arrest you instead and um, begin a Bolshe revolution <laughs> across Germany. So this was the first sort of big uh, communist uprising in Germany, and it started in Kiel uh, with the Kiel, Sailors, uh, the Kiel Sailors' Rebellion. And that this was kind of put down. There was the, the, um, the police or the military attacked the protesting sailors, and a bunch of people were killed. We went and saw a little mural dedicated to that. Um, but, yeah, sailors in Kiel and Bremen, and then just the organised working-class communists across Germany uh, participated in a wave of revolts which culminated in the Social Democrats in Germany declaring a republic, um, declaring a sort of secular republic and getting rid of the last vestiges of feudalism as a sort of circuit-breaker on this communist uprising. So we kind of could have had communism in Germany, perhaps, in 1918, had it not been for the Social Democrats diffusing that revolutionary movement, declaring a republic. Um, and then a couple of years later, I think in 1920 or 1921, there was another big communist uprising, and that was also sort of diffused. And then throughout the 20s, you had this kind of tense standoff between... Um, communists and socialists and unionists on one side and the brown shirts on the other side. Hmm. Oh, it sounds so, like a, that was a pretty fascinating anecdote. Yeah. All right, so and now it's 8.01. Um, um, we have a big interview coming up at 8.10, um, but now it's time for the activist calendar. Activist calendar... All right. Um, so the first thing um, I'd like to announce is there's going to be a seminar on Northern Syria's feminist revolution. That's going to be happening from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, at the Victoria University at the city campus of 300 Flinders Street, and it's organised by the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre. Um, and that will have one of the guest speakers who are going to be um, interviewing at um, in a few minutes soon at um, Frederike Gerdink. Frederike Gerdink. Yeah. Um, now, the Nick, um, they, I also would like to announce again, there will be an important refugee rights rally happening at 2pm at the State Library um, tomorrow on Saturday. Um, there'll, be, there'll be a public meeting, um, Black Lives Matter in Conversation, um, 
Um, basically, it will feature four of the Black Lives Matter's founders and leaders. We'll talk about the achievements and broader goals of the Black Lives Matter movement and how we can translate the lessons of the movement to fight entrenched inequality, inequality for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia. Um, so they'll be at 8pm at the Plenary One at the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre and you can make bookings of this event at the Wheeler Centre website. Um, tomorrow, on Sunday, there will be um, Political Asylum happening at 5.30pm at the Brunswick Green, um, which is at 313 Sydney Road. Um, Hang on. Uh, did you uh, give a plug to that rally, that refugee rally that's happening tomorrow? Yeah, I just did. Oh, sweet, sorry. Sorry. Vagued out a bit. Okay. Um, now, some other events um, that are happening. Um, next Saturday... Um, there's going to be a rally to defend and um, to defend public housing, um, basically in light of the Labor government's attempts to state Labor government's attempts to sell off public housing land. Um, this rally is going to be held at the Walker Street Estate in Northcote, um, which is on um, 11 High Street of Nor- Northcote, and th- that rally will be at 1 p.m. at the at, on the next Saturday on November the 11th. Um, on November 11th, there will be the Sad Girls Fest, um, which will be is Australia's largest music festival dedicated to promoting gender diversity in the music industry and is back for the third year running. That will be happening at 12pm at the Reverence Hotel at 28 Napai Street in Footscray. Um, on Sunday, um, there will be another gig, um, Music for a Warming World, um, a highly, a unique, highly entertaining musical journey um, telling the story of our changing climate. Um, music for a Warming World uses original folk, reggae and world music, combining it with stunning immersive visuals, making a truly memorable and inspiring event. That will be happening at 6pm, um, Sunday the 12th of November at 85 Gillies Street in Fairfield, and it's hosted by the Climate Action um, in Durban. You'll do some announcements, Zane? On Wednesday, November 15, there's the post-poll result day picnic. The announcement of the results of the non-compulsory, non-binding, offensive opinion poll about your human rights is time to be with people you like. That is at 10am at Alexandra Gardens uh, at Boathouse Drive in the city. And it's organised by the Equality Is Facebook. And also on Wednesday, November 15, there will be a equal marriage results party for yes. Gather as a community to watch the results of the quote-unquote plebiscite for equality. Let's show Melbourne our thank you for their yes with a mega fab massive glittery gay party. 10am to 5pm at Fed Square in the city so paint the town rainbow that's what's going to be happening on wednesday november 15 and then there is also a rally uh marriage equality postal survey result at 10 30 a.m at the state library so uh and that one's organized by united for marriage equality vic trades hall council equal love and australian marriage equality so no less than three events happening on the same day on Wednesday, November 15, um, uh, to sort of celebrate what it will inevitably be a pretty substantial yes vote, I reckon, in the equal marriage poll. And then, actually, I think that also on the 
um, Wednesday, November 15, there is the Palestinian Natural National Day celebration. That's at 5 o'clock at Fed Square in the city. And, wow, there is a fourth uh, marriage equality event happening, uh, and that is a Melbourne's Marriage Equality Result Street Party, 5.30 Trades Hall, um, yeah, on Wednesday the 15th. So whatever you're doing in the morning before work, during the day, have the day off work, have a sickie, have a mental health day, just just have a just go on strike, just have a day off. Um, or when you finish work, head to Trades Hall. There's just going to be marriage equality stuff happening everywhere, all over Melbourne on November 15th. So get amongst it. Right. Um, the other event I would like to announce, which is not printed on this activist calendar yet, is on um, November the 18th um, on a Saturday. There will be um, on October Revolution um, 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 day of discuss- um, sort of afternoon of discussion um, um, titled October Revolution um, Legacy and Lessons, which will go from 1.30 to 5pm um, at um, the Resistance Centre, Level 5, uh, 407 Swanson Street um, and it'll feature a video link from Canadian um, Marxist John Riddell. So that should be an uh, interesting um, day of discussion. Alright, I'm going to go play a few announcements and we'll go, go on to our, f- our first interview for the program. Let's quickly... 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 OK, um, good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, so we have our first um, interview of the program, and, you know, it's actually quite a significant guest speaker I think we have. Um, her name is Federica Gierdink. Um, she is a Dutch journalist. Um, to give a bit of a bio and background on her, um, she was based in Turkey from 2006 um, and, you know, mainly being a reporter around, I think, you know, um, politics in Turkey. Um, And in 2015, while reporting on the war between the Turkish army and the Kurdish resistance forces, um, Giyadink was detained by the Turkish police um, and then expelled. Um, So, and she's going to be speaking um, at tomorrow at the... 
Rodra at the Northern Syria's feminist revolution um, forum that's happening at Vic Uni um, starts at 10 a.m. Yep. Okay. So good morning, um, Frederica. Good morning. Good yeah. morning. Okay. So I guess maybe to the first question, I kind of want to ask you is maybe tell tell us a bit about yourself and you know what has been kind of like the work you've kind of done as um, a journalist, um, especially around this whole you know the whole Kurdish question. Yes, I've, I started my work in Istanbul as most uh, foreign correspondents. That was, like you said, in 2006. And in 2012, I moved to Diyarbakir. That is the biggest city in the southeast of Turkey, where the population is in majority Kurdish. And I started more, I've always been writing, like you said, about politics, but also about human rights. Um, and, and the Kurdish issue is the most pressing issue in Turkey um, when it comes to politics and human rights. So I started um, reporting on them, and then in 2015, in September, I uh, I was detained and, and expelled from Turkey. And the more, the deeper I got into the Kurdish issue, the more I also looked over the borders of Turkey into other Kurdish areas, like in uh, because the Kurds also live in Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And I haven't been to Iran yet, but um, I started traveling also to Iraqi Kurdistan and Syrian Kurdistan, and that's where I've also met. Um, yeah, the, the movement that is now in the north of Syria, where the Kurds live, that is um, trying to set up an, a different administration. So, and that's how I ended up uh, in Australia also to uh, to talk about this subject. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what has been kind of like you have you visited northern Syria? What has been your like experiences of you know because we're, we're um, our program is very supportive of what's happening in northern Syria. And, um, you know, it's always great to have someone who has had first-hand experience of what's actually happening there on the ground. Yes, yes. Syria is, of course, um, has been in the news for this terrible, terrible civil war. Um, what many people don't really realize is that in the north of the country, it has been relatively uh, calm and relatively safe. Um, in 2012, <clears throat> the, the government troops of President Assad have uh, have left the, the front there because they needed to focus on, on other fronts, they, they thought, in, in the country. And then the Kurds um, in Turkey, where I was at the time in 2012, they had been working already for a few decades since since the PKK was uh, the, the Kurdistan Workers' Party that is... Um, since since the PKK started in the end of the 1970s, had been working slowly, slowly, and the last years more intensive on building sort of a local local um, democ- democratic system that is bottom-up democracy, they say. So you have all sorts of local councils, sometimes even on neighborhood level, that really have decision-making power. Um, and also while doing that, respecting the diversity of the region, because sometimes in the news we think like it's all Arabs in, in the Middle East, but there's different different groups like Kurds, like Turkmen is a small group, you still have Armenians there, there's Yazidi uh, people, Yazidis are people with a, Kurds with a different uh, religion than, than Islam. So they try to respect the different cultures and also give... Um, like very much important to to women's emancipation, so th- their women's participation is very high. Mm. So when when um, the Assad troops left the north of Syria, where the Kurds live mostly, 
they thought, hey, we have this system already that we tried to build in Turkey, but now we here we actually have the chance to really try to put it in practice. So they started um, building these local councils and trying to make women participate and make Armenians and Arabs and everybody who lives in the region participate. But it was it didn't really get very much attention in the press also because at the same time, of course, the Syri- Syrian civil war was, was raging, still is. Um, and the Kurds were trying to cu- keep ISIS out of their area because ISIS was con- constantly attacking and trying to take over parts like like the battle for Kobani. I don't know if you remember, that was the end of 2014. Kobani was a city um, at, the, at the Turkish border and ISIS tried to take it over from the Kurds and the Kurds fought them very fiercely and eventually got American help and managed to, to throw um, ISIS out of Kobani again. And Kobani has become... I, I went there after the battle was over in January 15. And, and Kobani became sort of a symbol of the of the resistance of the of the Kurdish people in North Syria. Mm. But at the meantime, they were also building this democracy, and it's a pity that not that there's not been much attention for it. So, I'm happy to speak about it now on the radio and tomorrow in this conference. Yeah. Um. So, what well, um. What do you think? Um. Actually, one kind of thing I want to kind of ask you, um, especially since this is something you spent a lot of time with, is you know, why do you think um is kind of one of the reasons um why this hasn't been you know getting much international attention, and also, what can you tell us about you know the kind of role that Turkey plays in all this, you know, especially in the light of their, you know, consistent persecution, you know, as you've probably witnessed firsthand of the Kurdish people in Turkey? Yes. Um, Turkey has um, sort of... Turkey almost uh, was founded almost 100 years ago. And one of the foundations of the of the state of Turkey is its its, its unity. And of course, every every country has its has its borders, and and they protect these borders. But in Turkey, um, it also it also means the unity also means that everybody has to be the same. Everybody has to be Turkish. But the Kurds are not Turkish. They are Turkish citizens. They have a Turkish passport, but they are Kurds. They have a different different culture and different language, and they've not been able to live that in Turkey. It's been suppressed fiercely and um and it still is being suppressed. It's it's not as bad as anymore as before the eighties, for example, when, when their existence was not even recognized. But still they are not free at all. Um and for Turkey that has that has to do with like the foundations of their state. If you give the Kurds more rights based on their identity, they're afraid that Turkey will fall apart. And that, um, and and the and the Kurds in Syria, they have the same ideology. They also say we want um, not necessarily our own state, like the Kurds in Iraq, um, but we want auton- autonomy on on a local level, on a regional level. But that's too much for Turkey as well, um, because Turkey is also a very centralized uh, state. And President Erdogan has has uh, earlier this year also taken in a referendum more power for the presidency so it's only more getting more centralized and and syria has been like that as well of course with it with the dictatorship of the assad family um and now the the kurds in syria they are right at turkish border they have very very big parts of the of the borderland is in these kurdish hands and that scares turkey very much people always wonder like 
it seems as if Turkey finds um, the Kurds a bigger threat than ISIS. And actually, it's true that they that they think uh, the Kurds are a bigger threat. And in their perspective, it is understandable because ISIS is more of a military threat, and the international community is fighting it. And and it doesn't really touch upon Turkish system. The the ISIS also calls itself a state. It is really centered on state, on masculinity, on on not giving any rights to to minorities. And that's the same what Turkey does. Turkey Turkey does it in a different way, of course. ISIS is very very brutal. But the PKK is really, and, and the groups in Syria that that uh, have the same ideology, they really, like, um, yeah, they are a threat to Turkey in that way. They try to really fundamentally change the system, and that scares Turkey. That scares the hell out of Turkey, you could say. Um, Frederico, I'm just wondering. Um You've spent uh, close to about a decade in in Turkey. I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you can comment on how this strong, uh, radical feminist current has developed as part of the Kurdish uh, progressive and, and independence movement. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, the Kurdish movement was not that uh, that progressive on on women's issues, but in the 90s, their ideology started to change, um, and they they think that to solve to solve the problems in Turkey and in the wider Middle East, um, th- there needs to be more focus on uh, on on women's not 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 just women's participation, but making a more feminist society. Hmm. They say this whole this whole idea of nation states is a very masculine um, idea of uh, hierarchy, for example, and they say if you make the whole society more feminine. Then you can this this system of bottom up democracy is more they say um, connected to fe- feminine values um, like giving importance to the community and not to one man ruling a group but to to rule yourselves and to give importance to to the strength of a community. Mm. So they say if we want to realize this, it means we have to give all the way to women because women. Um, it's it's sort of a women's value. Sometimes that's a little bit difficult for feminists in the West because they don't see it like that. In the West, feminism is more focused on participating on the power levels of the state, like like high participation in um, in politics and you know getting more women on the top of of big companies. But they say no, mm. th- these are masculine values, and we need to get away from that. We it's also an ad- anti-capitalist movement. So they say, if we don't give the women, make the women the forefront of these changes, it can never succeed. The, the, the women have to be in the front. And that's what you see um, in society, but also on the battlefield. Mm. 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 Yeah, see, it's always like, hmm, because in, in, in the West, feminism is, is really different. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. Um, the other question I kind of want to ask is, basically... Um, what what do you think is kind of like the the future of kind of like north northern Syria, like in terms of what you see, um, in terms of its kind of def- defending itself against you know ISIS, but they also because one of the things with um, what they're doing in Rojava is they also have to contend with ISIS, but they also have to contend with the fact that Turkey wants to also wants to destroy that um, um, Rojava. 
Yes, it's a very important question how how the future what the future will look like because it it looks now very much like uh, like Assad is going to win the Syrian civil war, and Assad uh, is a dictator, so he will want the whole of the country back. He will not settle for seventy five percent because the Kurdish issue are, the Kurdish parts of the country are now like twenty twenty five percent of the country, so he will want it all back, and um, so the Assad's army may uh, attack northern Syria. And I don't think the Kurds can then count on the international community to defend them because the international community has supported the Kurds to fight ISIS. And if ISIS is gone, they for them there is no reason anymore to support this system that is against against the nation state itself. So it doesn't it's also, you know, its ideology is really very opposing the the, the whole also, the American nation-state and the American capitalism. So, probably they want the international community won't support the Kurds if if Assad wants wants his whole territory back. And then we have to see how how strong the Kurdish forces are against an yeah against an official army because in Turkey they've been fighting the Turkish army since 1984 and they're still standing. But of course, in Turkey they're not really holding territory they are not they, in turkey they are a guerrilla force but in in north syria they are really the the military force that is the the most important in that part of the country so if they are really capable of defending their territory because it's hard to say now how how strong um this the syrian army really is they are of course also strong because they get russian support and the russians and the kurds have historically reasonably good ties, so it also remains to be seen if if um, if Assad wants the Kurdish ter- territory back, how Russia will react to that. If Russia will really support it in that goal, so that that is really important question. They, they the Kurds are really trying to gain as much experience with this local democracy system as possible. But if it will hold out in the longer term, it's really a, a, a very important question. Hmm. Zang, you have a question? Yeah, I'm just wondering, um, Frederica, can you paint us a picture for how um, a reunification of Kurdistan may occur? Because it's like Kurds are pushing up against these repressive regimes. There's just been this uh, independence referendum in the Kurdish uh, autonomous region of of northern Iraq. Iraq Mm -hmm. has responded by sending in the army. As you've said, in northern Syria... The Assad regime is going to push back. There's Erdogan in Turkey, and then the Iranian uh, state is also hostile. Can is there some pathway where you could see reunification of Kurdistan occurring? And is that actually even a strategic goal for activists on the ground there? It is a goal. Um, it is a goal for the Iraqi Kurds who who have sort of a dis- different system than the ones in, in Syria and, and Turkey. But it's also a goal for the PKK and for the PID, that's the political group that holds power in, uh, in Syria. Um, but they see it in a different in a different way, like in the Iraqi Kurds are more state-centered, they want the state, and the others want more, like... Um, because of the borders in Kurdistan, also, for example, communities and um, families cannot easily visit each other if they live on the other side of the border. Mm. So the PKK and, and the PYD say we have to 
with this democracy from bottom up, you make sort of you make the the borders irrelevant, you could say. So people can easily travel again between the, the several areas of Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. So and, and in that way reunite them, not in state, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. And if it is realistic, um, of course, it it doesn't look that way now. You know, there's a lot of hostility against the Kurds. But it's always been like that. You know, the Kurds have this saying, we have no friends but the mountains. And and that is really very clear again now. They have friends as long as there's common goals, like fighting ISIS. Then the Americans want to be friends. But later they will um, desert them again. But what I've also seen with being a lot, uh, spending a lot of time with these groups is that they... Um, you know, you and me being journalists, you working for radio, me as a writer, we are we are very focused on what is happening today or what is maybe happening at the end of the Syrian civil war. But they have a much bigger perspective. Um, they say maybe we will have a free Kurdistan um, in two or three generations' time. Mm. And that is usually not really the perspective that, that, that we have or that maybe the listeners of this program have. But they say, especially the fighters, they say, of course, we can we can die in battle tomorrow. But it's not about our lifetime. We have to invest in long term changes. Mm. And and so they try. That's why they focus so much on education for their fighters, but also for for the communities okay. so that the communities learn about the system and give, can can pass it on to their children and and get experience with it so that that in time. When maybe change, things change, that they like like happened in like what happened in Syria suddenly. Hey, Federica, the war was um, there. Sorry, and, uh, we yeah. have to interrupt you because we're getting ah. to the end of the program. So sorry. Ah, okay, that's okay. <laughs> um, we'll yeah. definitely be well. We'll definitely be seeing um, you um, tomorrow um, when you're yes. speaking at the Northern Syria, and while you have a, t- a chance to probably chat a bit more. So, yes. yes. Okay. Thank you Thank so you much for, for having our me. Program. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, Frederike Gierdingse, who's speaking tomorrow at the uh, Northern Syria's Feminist Revolution um, Conference at the Vic Uni City Campus, 300 Flinders Street, Melbourne, at 10 a.m. All right, that's us for another week. Stick around for Beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What?